You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Any text is woven entirely with citations, references, echoes, cultural languages, which cut across it through and through in a vast stereophony. The citations that go to make up a text are anonymous, untraceable, and yet already read. They are quotations without inverted commas. The kernel, the soul, let us go further and say the substance, the bulk, the actual and valuable material of all human utterances is plagiarism. For substantially, all ideas are secondhand consciously and unconsciously drawn from a million outside sources, and daily used by the garnerer with a pride and satisfaction born of the superstition that he originated them, whereas there is not a rag of originality about them anywhere, except the little discoloration they get from his mental and moral caliber and his temperament, and which is revealed in characteristics of phrasing. Old and new make the warp and woof of every moment. There is no thread that is not a twist of these two strands. By necessity, by proclivity, and by delight, we all quote. Neurological study has lately shown that memory, imagination, and consciousness itself are stitched, quilted, pastiched. If we cut and paste ourselves, might we not forgive it of our artworks? Jonathan Lethem won the National Book Critics Circle Award for his novel Motherless Brooklyn. He's the author of The Fortress of Solitude, Men in Cartoons, You Don't Love Me, and Chronic City. His newest book is The Ecstasy of Influence, Nonfictions, etc. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, the introductory essay to this book was really wonderful, and uh, I think it jumped me over in tracks in the way I read this book. And throughout this book, I thought about the way I read, was reading not only this book, but other books. But my, as, as I read this book, um, what I was thinking is, this is actually a novel. It's a novel about a novelist who has quite a bit of artistic success and is now trying to define himself with these um essays and you pointed out that whenever you write nonfiction, you're not you. You're not the the flesh and blood person I'm talking to right now. You're another person, <laughs> yeah. a character of yourself. Yeah. Well thanks very much. And I, I love the description you've offered. I, I do believe that helplessly, for me anyway, when I write quote unquote nonfiction, I'm still a storyteller and I'm still inventing a voice and in in fact the implicit voice of any given review or essay or confessional piece I might write is a kind of confabulation. It's a, you know, a character named Jonathan Lethem is talking. And um, often, you know, when I look back on pieces I've written a while ago, I, I see that I've sort of conjured up some version of myself that was useful and functional and did the job and got the thing across and is not quite me. And in fact, I think they're all never quite me. But somehow with this book, I'm trying to surround this problem with with uh, you know so many different kinds of descriptions that maybe I can become visible in the uh, gestalt. 
Well, one of the things I love about this book is the variety of voices, the variety of subjects. Um, it, this book is really a, a lively look at writing and reading. And because of this opening essay, um, which uh, is just really thought-provoking, um, it really makes us think about the reading process. It makes me as a reader really self-conscious. I was constantly thinking, well, wait, I'm reading this. And I had to come, I would find myself reminding myself, oh, yes, no, this isn't this isn't nonfiction. This is Jonathan's story. This is just another story. And I think that's what what you said is that you're a storyteller. This is just a series of stories and stories within stories. Yeah, well, you know, I I, I came to being a writer out of art school. I'd been training to be a painter and a, and a sculptor, and I guess I still think in terms of sort of artifacts. I wanted to make narratives. I wanted to make stories the way someone would want to make a film or a comic book. And in fact, I just decided that fiction was my, that was going to be my medium. And so when I drifted into writing essays or when I was asked to review things, my reaction was often, okay, well, how do I make this kind of thing? What sort of sculpture or painting is a is a review? And the story of what it was like to be the person contemplating a given book or a song or, or the whole career of a musician like James Brown, I guess I'm always, for better or worse, I'm putting myself into the frame and, and looking at the problem of being a fan or a reader or I've got some pieces in this book about the the ambivalence I feel about the critic's role. I, I don't really I don't really believe in the ostensible objectivity that goes with you know agreeing to be you know what would it be like a kind of a, a consumer uh, consumer advocate. Oh, you should read this book or listen to this listen to this song because I can tell you it's definitely good. I don't think that there's an easy way to be objective that like that. I mean, I, I, I like my taste. I believe in my taste. I think you should listen to James Brown. But but the fan is always there, you know, uh, as I write that. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not some sort of dispassionate critical authority. Well, one of the things that interests me about this book is that it's a collage about collage making and about the importance of collage in art and um, about how... Um, Original art is made from unoriginal things in, in that many of these pieces were published elsewhere. This is exactly what it uh, pretends to be about. That's great. I, I, I really love that that aspect of the project is, is so uh, visible to you because I think of it that way myself. I wanted to I, – I guess I have a, a tendency these days to want to point to the, the seams and the, the constructed quality of, of what I do. And this book exemplifies that. It's it it's a book that is also a kind of giant pile of disparate objects. It you know it's centrifugal. All the things point in different directions, and yet because I've roped them together and strung them like beads on this string, they're going to function as one one final final result. And um, I you know I think that I, it may also have to do again with my grounding in the visual arts that I see. Collage is a really fundamental act in, in in art making. Even even when I'm writing novels, I think in some ways I'm pasting 
and gluing things together that come from different places. Well, you know, at, at one point in this book, you talk about um, the difference between comic books and movies made from comic books. And you say that in a comic book, there's always, it's a series of scenes that are separated by those white margins. And I was thinking, that's exactly what this book is. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I, I, I love all the analogies you're offering. Yes, it's a comic book. I'll agree to anything. <laughs> it's a comic book. It's a collage. It's a it's a song. It's not really a book. But um yeah, you know, this was something that fascinated me. My own dissatisfaction at so many comic book movies, you know, it, it, it seemed like something that I should be on the side of, right? I love, I like I like superhero comics and I like film. And so people were saying, well, here's this great new genre. But I, I, I kind of hated the results again and again and again. And then I realized it was because the, the terms of the viewer's relationship to a film were so different from the way a viewer response to a comic book. With a comic book, uh, you assemble it yourself. You've got this very complicated reading procedure where you look at some pictures and you read some word balloons and you turn the pages and maybe you double back and you decide which panel to look at next. And you're completely present as a reader. You know, people like to sneer at comic books as though they're a kind of lower order of reading experience, but I actually think they're a really esoteric reading experience. And when you hand a comic book to people who have never read one before, it's it's for them, it's very difficult. They don't know how to translate the, the stimulus into a story. Um, it's a learned procedure. Film is the opposite. It's extremely passive. You sit there and you let it wash over you. And I don't mean that critically. I think it's a brilliant medium precisely for its resemblance to, you know, the dream life. You go into a darkened space and at a rate that you do not control yourself, images and sounds flow over your your mind and and that passivity and kind of the experience of a seamless flow is essential to what a film can do uh, at its best. But the resemblance to a uh, comic book is nowhere in sight. The two are almost opposite if you look at them on those terms. Now, um, as we're building up the character of uh, Jonathan Lethem in this book, he's a novelist, a young novelist uh, approaching middle age. So he says, I don't believe it, but we're going <laughs> to use that as a portrait of a, no- of a young novelist uh, emerging into his uh, slightly uh, still young maturity. Um, this novelist likes to make lists. And what's interesting um, this whole book is like a series of uh, what Rudy Rucker calls nested scrolls. It's a book of lists. It's a list that consists of lists, and there are there are lists within the list. So talk about the importance and in, in your interest in numbering paragraphs. Well, that's funny. I you know I I guess I derived the numbered paragraph from contemporary literary theory, which is you know prone to doing this again as a method of making. The construction visible. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of a, a a way of inserting a stop into the experience of the reading and 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 a, insisting on a on a reboot. You know, okay, now you're now you're reading paragraph number fifteen. Well, why am why am I thinking about that? You're thinking about that because I wanted you to stop for a second. <laughs> so it's just a, another version of visibility. But yeah, I do I do like lists, and you know, um, I joke at the beginning of this book that um, I want the book to be like. Ian Dury's song, Reasons to be Cheerful. One of my favorite songs. I'm so glad you <laughs> quoted that. It's just like um, right out of my uh, mental attic. Yeah, well, I, I like that song so much, not only because it's infectious and funny and omnivorous, 
it names so many different kinds of other artworks, but because it has this encompassing, embracing quality that a list can have. It says, look, there's a lot of stuff, and I like a lot of it, and I'm going to tell you what it is. And I thought, this is, this is a, a good stance for an artist to have, not to be severe and exclusive and pretend not to be connected to their culture or not to be inspired by it, but to say, when people ask, were you influenced by so-and-so? You know, did you write this book because you love Raymond Chandler? To say, yes, him and, and then name a dozen other people and point out how much influence flows in and out of your work. You know, one of the things, too, that that this book, the list in this book and this book as a whole brings uh, for the reader is the joy of assembly, is that you give us a whole bunch of things that um, may at first seem disparate, but each little piece of the puzzle, by the end of the book, we really know you. And if we've read your other work, or even if we hadn't, we've got a big picture of you. And I think that's one of the things that uh, to me, made this more like a novel reading experience because every every time I would go to another part, I'd say, okay, what part of the Jonathan Lethem puzzle is this? Where does this slot into the big picture? Well, I'm, I'm honored you see the book in that light. I worked, you know, it's, it's a perverse uh, effort at some level when you make a compilation like this to work to make it flow from beginning to end, knowing the the average reader, and I don't mean that disparagingly, is probably going to browse in the thing. It's born for that, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a it's it's like a a treasury. And what do you do with the treasury? Well, you wander around in it. You pick out the things that you're curious about. And I know I do that myself as a reader. And if I'd been handed this book, I might be most prone to just flipping it open in the middle and paging through and finding something that grabbed me. But it seemed really important at the same time to try to make the thing function from beginning to end as a book, partly because, you know, truthfully, it's a privilege to have a grouping of disparate pieces like this put into hardcovers these days. It isn't done all the time. No, no. I mean, I joke that the book is a little bit like a blog in that it's flying off in so many different directions. It's got so many, you know, links, although you can't actually click on these links. So in that way, it's, it's sort of worse than a blog, right? But I thought the one way it can really earn its place in hardcovers is to function as a book as well. And so I wanted to give it a kind of total shape. Now, uh, one of the things, there's a couple of ways you can read this. And, and I have to admit, when I first got this book in the advanced reading copy, I just went to the parts that said Philip K. Dick. <laughs> That's what I did, and you know, to the middle essay and some of that stuff. And then I went back and read through it, you know, cover to cover because I'm very that's just I'm compulsive that way. That's just the way I have to do things when I finally sit down to really do them. I I had I you know I I sampled the the dinner tray and then I went back and ate each course one one bit at a time. But you talk about uh, two different kinds of way of reading in the beginning here: termite versus white elephant reading. Mm. And I'd like you to uh, talk about where those terms came from and what they mean sure. to you. Sure. Yeah, uh, I'm very attached to them, and they became kind of an organizing principle for thinking about my activities in this in this book, they come from a critic, a great film critic, who was actually also a working visual artist uh, named Manny Farber. And Farber conceived these terms to describe some of his own preferences in as a film goer and as a film writer. What he called termite art was stuff that didn't emerge because of some ponderous notion of the uh, director as an important artist making a gigantic statement of 
you know, perhaps edifying uh, relevance to the culture, but rather the kind of hardworking, light on their feet craftsperson who would take an assignment in Hollywood. Perhaps they'd be handed a script for a film noir or a, or a Western, and they would slam together a film. And their voice would be evident in the result, and the um, performances would have a kind of freedom and looseness uh, that came from not taking the effort too seriously, but from seeing that engagement was more important than bearing down to try to derive some great, powerful statement. And this difference in artistic stances, now obviously it doesn't apply everywhere. It can't be used as a, as a compass through every situation. And there are many artists who combine some kinds of termite behavior with some kinds of white elephant behavior. In fact, I suppose I'm one of those myself <laughs> now. But I always identified with the description, and I really liked the preference, the idea of a preference for termite engagement with culture, where you just kind of nibble through it and make your bore your holes in the, in the cultural conversation, and you keep moving, and you don't worry about issuing massive uh, statements the the kind that are, tend to be honored with you know large awards you know um, the kinds of films that are, are always released in December just in time for the Oscar nominations. One of the interesting things for me is that, of course, I also have white elephant propensities. I sought to be taken seriously and to be accorded the status of a serious, important American novelist, and I sort of got there, which is a, still a matter of some disbelief as well as gratitude for me. I'm I'm amazed to to be taken so seriously as I as I am, and it brings with it all sorts of privileges. But there's a weird immobility or kind of constriction that comes with, with playing that role. And it makes me yearn for the freedom that I, you know, perhaps in some ways even sentimentally associate with termite status. You know, when I was a dark horse every time out and my 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 writing came from the margins and I, I could do absolutely what I, whatever I liked and keep moving. One of the things that we get to do in this book is we get to meet Jonathan Latham in in person as a as a young man working in the used bookstore trade, and, and these uh, biographical sketches are are really nicely, beautifully written. And I'd like you uh, just to talk about you know visiting your own life and recreating yourself as a character because I'm guessing you weren't writing these when you were. Uh, working in the used bookstore yeah, trade. Yeah, no, those were done in retrospect for sure. And I mean, you know, a lot of the pieces that that one, this comes to mind because that one was commissioned. A, a photographer was putting together a really remarkable book of photographs of used bookstores. Wow. And he wanted some writers to write something to accompany the the photographs. And I, I, um, I, I, I took this invitation and kind of surprised myself with what came out. A lot of this book is... It's a big pile of evidence of the the strange things that you end up doing if you say yes when people ask you to do stuff. You know, these aren't all pieces that originated with some kind of uh, urgent personal self-assignment. They were, uh, oh, gee, well, if someone wants me to write a a piece of fiction to go with a cover story on Drew Barrymore, you know, what would I do with that? And it's just when you take these propositions at a certain uh, angle and you, instead of saying that you're above doing such a thing. You try to figure out what you might have to say, and then, you know, something kind of comes out. But when I when I write about a thing, it usually is because I'm, you know, however flippant my tone may seem to be, it's usually something I care about. It's something I really love, and I'm trying to put 
what I feel for it onto the page in some way. And of course, with the used bookstores, I mean, I still miss that part of my life where I was in them every day. Not not that I'm going to suddenly want to be a retail clerk again. I, 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 I recall a lot of drudgery as well. But that contact with the books was so precious to me. And it's such an essential part of my self-definition that I still think about you know, myself as a a used bookstore guy in some way. So that that piece actually came very easily. It was a it was a lucky invitation. You know, it gave me a chance to say something I wouldn't wouldn't have occurred to me to do otherwise. Uh, and it's, uh, so this book consists of the exact kind of assignments you were describing a film director getting. Um, here's a piece, craft it out, get it out quick, and make it uh, fit this many words. In many cases, these are commissions, and so in that way, there it's kind of termite activity by definition. Someone else told me to do the thing. And um, yeah, it's, you know, it's also the many different situations that a novelist can find themselves in because of the strange fact that we accord novelists uh, all this credibility, you know, oh, you wrote a novel, now you must be able to write an op-ed piece or, you know, <laughs> or, or, or interview Bob Dylan. And it's, it's really quite ludicrous in a way. My, my novel writing doesn't, in any real sense, qualify me to do anything else. But for a while, I was very prone to – I was the the obliging writer who would take all of these different assignments. And so I found myself playing these different roles. Now, this book isn't just nonfiction. There's fiction in here. And one of my favorite pieces is in the – is the piece that's about uh, Philip K. Dick that includes fiction in it. So mm-hmm. you, it, you were getting into multiple levels of reality and fiction and – I'm thinking, well, this is uh, exactly like something in a Philip K. Dick novel. And uh, Philip K. Dick's work has, you know, influenced you. And he, he as a man, he interests you. So I, that's one thing I think that uh, it's it's fun to read. As I said, that's the part I went to the book I went Great. to right away. <laughs> T- tell me about uh, your, your interest in Philip K. Dick and maybe talk a little bit about that enormous tome behind you. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, he was someone I, someone I latched on to very early on, and he became emblematic for me. I mean, and really a, almost couldn't be a better definition of Fa- Farber's uh, notion of a termite artist, you know, if you want to apply it to literature. He was someone writing very quickly uh, to fill uh, the need for paperback science fiction at a time when it could be published kind of relentlessly and sold on drugstore spinner racks, and he would write six novels a year, and some of them just happened to be literary masterpieces. And, you know, that didn't really sink in for a long, long time. And he never, I think, completely grasped the nature of his own accomplishment. He certainly didn't treat himself, for the most part, like a serious literary author. But this weird uh, combination of what the critic and 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 writer Stanislaw Lem called uh, you know trash genius. He he was someone who who worked in a what seemed at the time to be a disposable medium like rock and roll or or comic books or bubblegum wrappers. Science fiction p- paperback originals weren't thought of as necessarily much more than that. And yet he imbued it with an extraordinarily philosophical and and humanistic dimension that you know makes him to my to my mind one of the key American novelist of the 20th century in the, in the pure sense. Well, so my regard for him and my engagement with him has led me into an involvement with his posthumous career. And he left behind a lot of uh, unpublished writing because he'd written a whole string of realist novels in the 50s that weren't published. And uh, he turned out he'd also left behind a completely bewildering 
amassing of philosophical and mystical musings, which uh, numbered in the thousands of pages that he wrote at the end of his life. And he himself called them uh, his exegesis, but they weren't organized in a book form. They were completely chaotic, uh, stuffed into folders. And for a long time, they just sat there uh, as an object of speculation and, and uh, impossibility because a lot of people thought they couldn't this stuff couldn't be published. It was too much of it. It was too strange and too contradictory and it had no beginning and no end. Well, I've, you know, ended up with uh, my co-editor, Pamela Jackson, being, uh, helping preside over the organizing of a, a kind of representative volume of Dick's exe- exegesis papers. And so this is a almost thousand page book, which represents, you know, somewhere between an eighth and a, a fifth of the, of the, the whole material. I hope we picked the right eighth. Um, we tried to select four, you know, sequences that would be relatively coherent and 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 engaging and and to put them in some kind of uh, meaningful sequence and and offer some apparatus, a few you know, an introduction and some annotations that would help people contend with it because it's a very strange bunch of writing and very difficult to contend with, but we've done our best to give it a, a bit of structure and, and uh, context so that someone can, if they're curious, can, can see what he was up to in this, in this last phase of his life when he was still writing novels, but he was also, in, in a weird way, he, he became what uh, Eric Davis, who was one of our annotators on the project, called a garage philosopher, completely untrained, completely wildcat, going mano a mano with the the very nature of existence uh, in these writings, you know, with, without the help of, of his storytelling uh, powers. He didn't, in this case, he didn't cloak his, his philosophical investigations in the form of a novel or an allegory or a short story. He just went right at them. You know, uh, it was interesting because I was, uh, as I was reading your book a couple days ago, I talked with the people who did the Van Gogh biography. And it struck me that both Van Gogh and Philip K. Dick were are, um, diagnosed as having temporal lobe epilepsy. Mm. And they both had a, a similar kind of burst of work where they just in a very short matter of time uh, created works that really changed the face of the art form within which they were working in a permanent manner and, and in a manner too because uh, Van Gogh was also just trying to make a buck. I mean, he, he was trying... He, was, <laughs> he wanted to sell a painting for yeah. God's sake. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, this speculative diagnosis because of course in both cases it can only be mm-hmm. a guess has been offered uh, of te- temporal lobe epilepsy has been offered for not only Van Gogh and, and, and Dick but for other visionary graphomaniacs, people like uh, St. Teresa of Avila mm-hmm. or Dostoevsky. And it's a very tantalizing description because it might seem to offer some sort of explanation. Uh, and then again, it could also be that something else was operating. And it's worth, it's always worth noticing that, I mean, Dick was a graphomaniac in many phases of his career. In the 50s and 60s, he wrote just as much as he did in this visionary period. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's unmistakable is that whatever kind of description you might offer to encircle these creative lives, the actual material of, say, Van Gogh's paintings or Dostoevsky's novels or or Dick's exegesis 
still demands its own terms. It's it's something that no other human being could have brought forward, no matter what they were suffering or undergoing or what kind of uh, diagnosis might, you know, in effect uh, account for the activities. The results are what's so astonishing. Right. Well, I... I, I... In mentioning temporal lobe epilepsy, I wouldn't, I would never suggest that that was the cause of it. But that seems to be associated with in both yeah, cases with uh, with uh, Van Gogh and with Dick. That mm-hmm. These people were geniuses. They also, though they might have had some kind of affliction, they also knew a what they were doing. They knew what they wanted to do, and they both had a great command of their art form. I mean, right. Dick was what was much better read, even though he had to write five novels a week, um, a year. I mean, his he was a well-read, very literate man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, I also think that what happens, you know, the more neurologists discover about the brain, the more mysterious it becomes. It's mm-hmm. almost like uh, comparable to particle physics, where the more we study the origins of the universe, the more uh, complicated the metaphorical or, or analogical descriptions uh, are, are required to, 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 to account for it. And, you know, the very matter of something called temporal lobe epilepsy may, in fact, be merely the tip of the iceberg of a kind of investigation of what our consciousness consists of in its pure form. When it when the synapses fire, when creative things happen, when language engages with consciousness, you know, um, maybe it's all temporal lobe epilepsy. <laughs> just slow down for, for the folks like me who, right. who are just trying just, to... Just do a level where we can handle it. You know, one of the things that you mentioned this name once, and, and but I think it kind of is uh, an important part of this narrative, is Zelig. Uh-huh. And, and I think that in many ways, you're like a Zelig in your own novel, in that you kind of put yourself on the border of your own experiences and the border of others' mm. experiences. Yeah. Um, well, a... novelists do identify with this figure, I think, of Zelig, the, the sort of spy or observer chameleon who can slip in and out of different milieus and circumstances and record or, or, or you know, gain access to different things. And uh, for that same reason, I think novelists tend to identify with private detectives with this, you know, person who sort of got a special license to cross boundaries and go, you know, from one one moment, you know, into the fancy high society party at the mansion and then slip around the corner and go into the the low life bar and and, you know, um, absorb information from all these different perspectives. Again, it's goes, this goes together with my feeling that the figure of the novelist, the figure of the writer, the figure of the critic is always present at these moments. That it, and I don't really want to hide hide that presence. I want I want the, this person to be visible, just as I want when I do my bits of music writing or other kinds of cultural criticism. I want the fan in me to stay visible on the page. Now, one of the things we do the 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 surprise, the sticky sweet surprise at the center of this novel, is the. Uh, the title essay, The Ecstasy of Influence. And it's a wonderful uh, piece of invention and absolutely the exact opposite of invention. <laughs> and, and you even got a little flack from some of your inspiration. So talk about uh, the decision to create this piece and, and how you went about creating it. Right. Well, I wanted to make a kind of um, an argument for this perspective that I, I thought was, well, you know, wasn't that it wasn't there were there weren't any people advocating for 
intertextuality or appropriation in culture. There were people doing it, but the people that were doing it tended to be on one end or the other. They were either kind of in the Lawrence Lessig realm. They were, they were advocates, specifically lawyers or theorists or high-minded philosophers of language or culture who were saying, you know, really, art is intertextual and th these things occur and it's important that we note this. Or they were provocateurs at the kind of in the working the margins of the internet, stealing things and reappropriating re culture and doing sampling in a, in a kind of thumbing their nose way. But what was missing, I thought, was a statement from the more average kind of creator, a, a, a mid-career artist like myself, a novelist or uh, you know, someone with a stake in copyrights, with something to lose, and whose work didn't necessarily exemplify or make obvious the nature of influence or intertextuality, because novels, for the most part, tend to smooth over such things. And so if you're not in, not interested in finding out what the sources are, you might never know that, that sources exist at all. They might Novels can give the appearance of sort of springing from whole cloth. I thought, let me talk about this from my perspective. So I wanted to write something that talked about the um, tissue of, of appropriations that I feel underlies all sorts of creativity, including my own. And then the next step was to realize, well, the only way to do that and honor the, 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 um, the impulse is to make the piece itself a, a, a collage. Use other people's words to say the thing I have in mind so that I could kind of put my money where my mouth was and pr prove the point. So I began to seek words I could appropriate, and I wove together this, this enormous collage of, you know, Mark Twain and Lawrence Lessig and Harry S. Truman and, and William Gibson and, and a, a thousand other people, you know, Saul Bellows in there. Uh, there's some song lyrics in there from the Beach Boys and so forth. And to try to kind of cobbled together a statement that would be something more than I could possibly have said in my own words uh, in a number of different senses. And so I, I did this. It was, a, it, was, it was a lot of work. It was sort of like writing a dissertation because I had to, you know, to, to do it the way I wanted to do it with full citations. I had to keep track of where everything was coming from. Well, it, it's a really wonderful piece to read, and it makes some really important points, too, about the nature of copyright in our society, which is even as we speak, I think the Congress is voting on something called SOPA, which is a, a law that's going to make it a lot harder um, to post stuff on the Internet because it'll make the people who are providing you the connection or hosting your website um, responsible for the content of your website and responsible for policing that. Hmm. It'll make the um, Justice Department responsible for policing this. And this goes straight to the the uh, heart of an argument of what you call uh, disnial. So explain <laughs> about... Um, uh, what you call use monopoly and disnial, which I think is a <laughs> – those are a lot of fun. Well, so use monopoly is just to give another name to what we call copyright and say, uh, what does it consist of? It consists of a period when you get to monopolize the, the profits from the use of a given thing. Um, and that's fine. It's a good thing to have. I personally happen to make my living from doing so. But I don't believe it's it's some sort of uh, gigantic, permanent moral imperative that I that these things remain controlled forever. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. It's it's quite important that you recognize that 
things ultimately flow in and out of the culture and return to the pool of common expressions and become available for reuse and, and appropriation effortlessly, that they not require permissions. And so just as I think a very handy example is to think of how Shakespeare's works are by now part of the common language. We all reuse them and refer to them and quote them and alter them without any hesitation. And there should come a time when, should anyone care to, I don't want to presume that they will, my own novels would be available on those same terms without any permissions attached to them. Disnial is my term for, and it's named after the Disney Corporation, which is sort of just an easy signifier for this tendency to take things that did belong to everyone, like, let's say, a fairy tale, uh, move them inside the protected area to put a copyright symbol over them or to trademark them and make them into private property after they've already been part of the common culture. It's the sort of, uh, I, I joke about the Roach Motel model where cultural notions check in, but they never check out. <laughs> I like that idea. You know, you write some one. You write really wonderfully about uh, art and uh, in music, and I I, I love. Uh, uh, there's also some really great uh, short stories in here. The collector is just really really great. I love that story, and Thank I you. and I love the art that goes with it. And and one of the things I have to say is that that story, the language in the story, and the way you shape the language in the story really reflects the the image that we see. And I'd like you to just talk about you, your father was an artist and yeah. you you talk about that a well, little I bit. Well, I guess I yeah, I was I grew up in a painter's household and I was going to galleries and museums as a child and took took this world as a not just a given but a very a very attractive one and and live nude models. Studied studied painting myself and wanted to wanted to gain this identity. And in some ways, I still think that, you know, transferred a lot of that desire and ambition directly into my my writing life. And I've also, for that reason, and I don't know, any number of others, I, I, I've hung out with artists a lot, and I really am responsive to to their projects. And sometimes I've found myself invited to, to write about them. Uh, and my reaction is always, well, I don't really want to do art writing. I'm not very good at it or very keen on it, but I'll write you a short story instead. I'll write some fiction that responds to your artwork. So this book contains several pieces of evidence of that activity. Again, it's a kind of commission where someone says, okay, you know, I mean, there's going to be a catalog of my paintings or photographs. Will you write something? And I try to figure out how to fit myself in uh, to that assignment and write a kind of responsive piece. So that short story, The, the Collector, which is really is one of my favorite uh, pieces of fiction I've ever written, I'd say, uh, comes from looking at Fred Tomaselli's paintings, which are themselves full of appropriations and collage, and trying to figure out what uh, what they what they meant to me. In a way, I invented a kind of fictional version of Fred. I, I thought about the psychology of the kind of artist who would make the paintings that I was looking at, and, and you know, it's not a biographical study of Fred, but it's a kind of projected uh, fiction of. of what what the inside of his brain might look like. Well, you know, you use a word, uh, and it, it pops up a few times, synesthesia, which is based on a diagnosis by a very famous book, and I think one that um, will eventually have proved to have cast a, a huge uh, shadow over literature, The Man Who Tasted Shapes by Richard Sidowick. 
And I, I think that that story is a perfect example of that. And I think that that is that is a lot of your operating premise in, in the way you write and the way you create. I think that that's lovely description. I'm honored by it. And I've always identified with the idea of synesthesia as being, uh, just as you suggest, more essential to the operation of literary art than than uh, anyone has quite grasped, that metaphors and analogies and and allegories are all in their way versions of synesthesia where one thing is taken for another or where one thing is described in the terms of another. And uh, I, I think I'm reaching for that again and again. I mean, in a very obvious way, you know, when I conflate, for instance, Tourette syndrome with Brooklyn, uh, as I did in a, in a book called Motherless Brooklyn, you know, it's a kind of mistake, really. What I'm doing is taking a, an error and, and investing everything I have in it, deciding, well, of course, Tourette syndrome is not, does not equate to Brooklyn. That doesn't make any sense in a literal way, but I'm going to make it real. Within the space of my book, anyway, that misapprehension is going to become uh, urgent and, and all-encompassing. It's going, to, it's going to tell my story for me. And you also do a, a wonderful job writing about music. And you, there are two pieces in here that are really quite stunning. Your, your visit with James Brown and your interview with Bob Dylan. And it's so funny that, to tell the truth. The Bob Dylan album that you came into him with was like past the end of my listening uh-huh. <laughs> experiences. Like Bob Dylan has, has stretched across, I think, three or four generations of listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's meant a lot to me. And I... I... I, he's one of my inheritances because my my parents were Dylan fans, and so I grew up listening to it. So it's you know he's gone through so many different phases. Obviously, in anyone's view, if they if they care for him and pay attention to him, and for me personally, those have corresponded to my own growth as a fan and as a as a sensibility. You know, there were times when I wanted to push him out or say I was done with him, but he somehow has always made himself important to me and reinvigorated my my curiosity and so to to get to meet him and talk with him about his art was a, you know it was really like stepping almost through the pages of a book and meeting a character or something it was it was a it was a great piece of luck for me and your visit with uh, James Brown is really fun and interesting. And I think that, again, this sense of synesthesia, you you're, you managed to use your writing to convey the sensibility of what it's like to be in that space with this with this kind of creative, you know, force of nature. Well, good. I mean, I, I think that all I wanted to do with either of those pieces, in a way, was say as completely as I could what it was like to be in the room with them, to just record, make myself into the most... Uh, completely available uh, recorder for for the 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 moment now um, as a writer you also write about writers and you you uh, write well about them uh, it's one of the things that I love this quote that uh, heads that section the novel will be at your funeral <laughs> yeah I, I'm that's a mailer Norman Mailer speaking and I'm I, I'm I'm right with him on that quote I think that it's incredibly resilient and capacious and protomorphic form, the novel, that is not going to be displaced by some other medium all of a sudden. I mean, the, the tendency to panic about that, to think that the movies or virtual reality or, or any number of other things are going to suddenly bring about the death of the novel seems immensely silly to me because its, it's innate properties are 
completely remarkable and irreplaceable. Absolutely. And um, no, I totally agree. And I think people uh, will go on seeking that experience out um, and and valuing it. Well, too, you talk about this, and I think this is very interesting. You say, consider how primitive and uh, the sophisticated stuff of our present is going to seem. <laughs> and and I, I think that's an important lesson, but it's also important. And, and we see that in, in movie special effects. That's a, a really great place to see it. You know, what was what blew us away uh, five years ago looks completely clunky now, right. with some exceptions, though. And uh, I think that when I still see the original King Kong in black and white, that movie, the, those images still have the same power mm-hmm. for yeah. me that they had when I first saw it, and they have more power than any subsequent reimagining of the of those images. I think that there's an energy that comes from the moment of discovery of certain things that embeds in the in the, you know, uh, talk about synesthesia. You know, you can feel the the filmmaker's own sense of wonder when you look at King Kong mm-hmm. again that um, it's entrancing and it draws you into a, a suspension of your disbelief or of your reservations about how creaky or silly anything might look uh, so that you experience a, a pure fusion of your own sensibility with the audience of the time. Uh, it's as marvelous as, as it ever was. And, and I think, too, uh, this, this idea of the... Uh, um the techno panic that we have. Every time a new technology comes out, there's this fear that, you know, it's going to make everything else outdated. And I, obviously that's not the case. And I think reading is a great example of that. I mean, this this hardcover book <laughs> we have here is a technology that's more than 500 years old. Yeah. Well, it's – and it's a, it's a technology that verges on being almost a kind of body, like a species of body that lives alongside our our own human species. I mean, these – these these book objects they're not it's not you know I mean, with all due respect to the the marvelous cult of the vinyl LP which I myself am a member of you know plastic circles with music on them is a very very recent phenomena but the book this bound together chunk of of pages and text and the way it feels and the way it affects you that goes much much deeper into human history and it's not going to be uh, displaced any too soon. And the feeling of entering a room full of books, whether it's a bookstore or a library or uh, someone's personal collection, these rooms and these objects, this is how our brains have grown, you know, in a kind of just as like a, a scientist studying the development of the, uh, the species of a domesticated animal like a dog or cat discovers that they were changing us as much as we were changing them by their attachment to our you know, the first time they came, they wandered into our cave and began taking our scraps. Well, I think books have changed our brains. And so this technology is more than a technology. It's a kind of uh, uh, co-occupant of the, the, the space our species takes up. And I think, too, that one of the, the things that makes your book, this particular book, so uh, interesting and so engaging, um, I have to mention the prose. There's a million wonderful sentences in here. Thank Did you revise them? Oh, I tinkered with almost every piece in the in the book. I mean, um, there were a few that might have seemed just right uh, and went in, but on the whole, everything was uh, was improved. I think, and in a couple of cases, changed radically. Although I don't, I don't sort of remark on this, so many might not know it. But for instance, the James Brown piece. 
uh, I restored several thousands of words that had been excised in the magazine version of the piece. So it's much longer in the, in this book than it was ever uh, in the uh, well, the length really works for it. It really immerses you in well, that good. scene. It's good. it's really it's very yeah. very uh, intense and and fun good. too. And some other things were cut down, and and they just seemed excessive, or there were references that were that seemed ephemeral and and unnecessary, and or that they were trying too hard at something that didn't need trying at all. And I just cut them down to their essences. Uh, a couple of pieces lost lost many hundreds of words. Uh, uh, in the in the editing, you know, and, and again, that puts brings us back to what makes this book so good is is as a reading experience, it makes us think about what we read and see what we read in a different light. As you read this, your perception of how of exactly what you're reading and what it's supposed to be changes page to page till we get to the very end. Right. And it also. Uh, is a it's a great introduction to your other work, but if you've ever read any of your other word work, it it's also like a new window. It's what uh, um, reframing, and I think you is it. I'm, maybe I'm getting mixed up between Van Gogh and you, but I think you talk about this in your book, don't you? Uh, reframing. I yeah. think that you may be writing your own version now, which is exactly what I would want you to be doing by oh, this point. Good. <laughs> I've been speaking with Jonathan Lethem. His newest book is The Ecstasy of Influence, Nonfictions, Etc. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. This was terrific. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.